Uh, these chapters of Zechariah are all about leadership, good leaders and bad leaders. Uh, what makes a good leader? There are all sorts of definitions. Uh, a simple definition is that a good leader is someone that people will follow. Someone who knows what to do, how to do it, and can bring people along. A bad leader won't do that, either because they can't, they're incompetent, or because they don't care. But a good leader needs to do more than just be able to lead. Now, by that definition that we've already given, Adolf Hitler would be a good leader. He was an effective leader, but I think he wasn't a good leader. I think a good leader has to lead people in ways that benefit them. Another definition of leadership is that it provides the conditions for people to flourish. Now, you may not like that definition, but a good leader is someone who can help people move to somewhere which is good. In a workplace, they can achieve what their role is about. A good leader enables people to do that. Now, most of us, I think, are led or at least influenced by all sorts of leaders in life today. Managers and bosses at work, politicians, police, judges, direct and organise our society, teachers and coaches develop our minds and our skills, news commentators inform our opinions, advertisers and marketers convince us that materialism and selfishness is the way to happiness. Parents, religious leaders guide our moral choices. Even celebrities and social media influencers shape our preferences and our spending habits. All sorts of leadership, but how much of that leadership is good? How much of it genuinely leads to our flourishing? to things which are good for us, to our growth and our fulfilment and joy. We need leaders like that, don't we? Israel had put up with bad leaders for centuries. Not just their kings, but priests, false prophets as well. And they'd led people away from God to follow idols and the end result of that was exile. But now in Zechariah, God is rebuilding his people he brought them back to the land. The building of the temple was progressing. He called them to return to him. He promised to return to them and to dwell, to live among them. That was chapters 1 to 6. And then he commanded them to worship him in truth. That was last week, do you remember? To live with integrity and honesty and justice. Chapters 7 and 8. But if the people were going to do all of that, then they needed a new kind of leader. A new kind of leader. A leader who would provide the conditions for them to flourish, to be able to live the way God wanted. Now that's what chapters 9 to 11 describe. Chapters 1 to 8 are about the present for Zechariah, but the rest of the book, chapters 9 to 14, are looking into the future for Zechariah and the people of his time. Uh, 9 to 14 is a vision for a future where God will give his people a new kind of leader, his promised Messiah, his king who would bring victory. 
So these chapters are all about our Lord Jesus Christ. Described accurately in startling detail. In fact, the New Testament writers quote or refer to just these three chapters today, 9 to 11, more than 10 times. If we want to find out more about what Jesus came to do and why, then these chapters of Zechariah will help. So three pictures of our Lord Jesus. He is the leader Israel need and the leader we need. So firstly, chapters 9, 1 to 8, uh, we meet a powerful judge who defends. A powerful judge who defends. Uh, so verse 1, the word of the Lord is against Israel's neighbours. Uh, those who historically have been her enemies, the ones around Israel. There is a long list of names, obscure cities in the countries of Aram or Syria, Phoenicia and Philistia. Uh, verse 2, Tyre and Sidon might be very skilful. Verse 3, Tyre might have heaped up more silver and gold than dust on the streets. But verse 4, the Lord will take away her possessions. Verse 5 and 6, Gaza will lose her king. Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod. And the pride of the Philistines will be cut off. These verses are saying it doesn't matter how big or how powerful, God will deliver justice against his enemies. And verse 8, why will God do all of that? But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. <coughs> Students of ancient history will tell you that when Alexander the Great and his army conquered all of these nations in this area, and he did it less than 200 years after these events, but he actually stopped short of Jerusalem. So God, uh, these were human agents, Alexander the Great, but behind them was God at work. And so these promises, these are promises that God himself will show up in judgment and salvation. He's the judge who's keeping watch. Now these verses are a scary thought for Israel's enemies, but for Zechariah and his hearers it would have been a wonderful encouragement as they laboured away at finishing the temple that behind them stood God, their righteous defender, who was keeping watch. Encouraged, yes, but also, I suspect, puzzled because of the next picture. So we've seen firstly God, the, the righteous defender, the judge. But this second picture uh, is one of a humble king who is saved. Uh, reading from verse 9 of chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's one picture. It doesn't quite sound like God the powerful defender, does it? Uh, this gentle king humbly riding a lowly donkey, not a, a big war horse. Uh, so chapter 9 with these two pictures is a bit like those optical illusions that, that have two pictures in one. Uh, maybe that one on, on your left. Have you seen that? Put your hand up if you can see 
uh, the old woman. Put your hand up if you can see the old woman first. Put your hand up if you can see the young girl turning sort of sideways to the back. So more people can see the young girl with the black hair uh, yeah, and than the old woman with the big nose. <laughs> uh, what about the, the one on, on your right? Put your hand up if you can see a duck. Put your hand up if you can see the rabbit turning the other direction. Okay, it's a bit more even there. So the point of these pictures is they're not a rabbit or a duck, they're both a rabbit and a duck. They're not a young girl or an old woman, they're both a young girl and an old woman. They're both pictures depending how you look at it. And so the message of this whole chapter, the start and the end of chapter 9, is that somehow God achieves his powerful judgment and protection through a gentle, humble, donkey-riding king. In fact, the contrast is even greater. Most translations miss verse 9, where it says, having salvation. It's actually a passive verb, which means having been saved. So, so this king is not actually saving people. He, he actually needs saving himself. This agent for God's protection will need rescuing himself. His victory will somehow come through his defeat. But don't interpret that victory as somehow weak or ineffective. Verse 10 describes how this king or what this king will do. Have a look at verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This humble king will bring real peace. He'll bring an end to war. And then verse 11 says that he will even spill his own blood to keep the covenant promises, the agreement, the contract that he made to his people. His blood will bring this covenant to bear. He will free them from prison. Verse 12, they'll be called prisoners of hope. Verse 13 says that instead of being the victim all the time, they will become the victor. Because God is fighting for his people, verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them. His, his arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south and the Lord Almighty will shield them. And then verse 16 of chapter 9, the Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. And so they will shine like jewels, which I think is about joy and a richness of life. The men will grow strong on grain. There's plenty to eat. Which man doesn't like a nice full plate of food? The women will rejoice with new wine. This is a picture of this king bringing peace and paradise and prosperity. Now that sounds like flourishing to me, doesn't it? And so this king is a good leader for his people. God's good leader. He achieves God's plans, but somehow he needs saving himself. Somehow he spills his own blood to win the victory for his people. 
Well, for us on this side of Jesus, we can see how those two parts fit together, can't we? Not in an earthly king, not in an earthly victory, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. He enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, deliberately fulfilling God's promises here in Zechariah. And then Jesus spills his own blood to seal a new covenant, dies on a shameful cross, humbled and needing salvation. But that's not the end. God raises him from death, vindicates him, delivers him victorious. Not victory over earthly nations, but victory over spiritual forces. Delivering God's judgment on Satan and sin and death. And then Jesus, our King, rescues us from those same spiritual forces. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, uh, describes what God did through Jesus when he judges, when he defeats, and also when he rescues. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the written code, that is the law, with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. He nailed the law to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's Satan and the evil powers that are in this world, he disarmed them and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's what Jesus, our King, did when he died and when he was raised to life. He defeated the forces and he saved us. Our Lord Jesus is the good leader that we need. Well, chapter 9 finishes, verse 16, with a picture of God saving the flock of his people. That's like a flock of sheep. His people are sheep, God is the shepherd. Uh, Chapter 10 picks up the idea of the shepherd and we meet a third picture of Jesus, the strong shepherd who restores. The grim reality of Israel was that they didn't just need rescuing from enemies outside their borders, they needed rescuing from their own leaders within their borders. Uh, They'd arrived back from exile, Uh, they had to find food. Re-establishing agriculture and fields and farming after 70 years of neglect would have been difficult. Where's the food for us to eat, they would say. Fields and fruit trees had been neglected for decades. In fact, Haggai tells us that it's what had distracted the people from building the temple. They'd focused on building their fields in their own homes. Verse 1 describes the obvious solution If you need food, you need rain and you need harvests, you ask the creator and sustainer of the world. You ask God. Verse 1, ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to, to men and plants of the field to everyone. Ask God if you have a problem. But what did the people do instead? Verse 2, the idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander 
like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. They needed food, they needed rain, but they asked the, the, the diviners, the, the false prophets instead. And they turned to false gods and idols, maybe the local gods. No wonder the crops were failing. God's flock had wandered without good leadership, without shepherds to guide them. And God blames the leaders of Israel, the elders, the prophets, the priests and the kings. Verse 3, my anger burns against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. The start of chapter 11 describes, vividly describes God's anger burning as being like a bushfire that, that races through a lush forest. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, so that fire may devour your cedars. And verse 3 says, Listen to the wail of the shepherds. Their rich pastures are destroyed. God is angry with the leaders of God's people. He promises to rescue his people from these bad shepherds because he is the good shepherd. Back up in chapter 10, verse 3. Uh, chapter 10, verse 3, we read, For the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. He's going to bring down the bad shepherds and be a shepherd instead. So just like in chapter 9, God delivers judgment and protection, but this time he does the judgment within Israel. God will remove shepherds and be their shepherd instead. And verse 4 tells us that he will be a shepherd by sending a new shepherd. Verse 4 says, From him the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow. Now you might think, what's going on there? It's like Christmas, you know, he's getting all these camping supplies or something. But, but each of those words is, is like a hyperlink uh, for another Old Testament prophecy about God's Messiah. God's promised king. Cornerstone, tent peg, battle bow. Psalm 118 verse 22, uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, that's talking about God's Messiah, Jesus. Psalm 22, oh, sorry, Isaiah 22 describes a leader who holds the key of the house of David and God promises to drive him like a peg into a firm place. It's a, it's a picture of a, a solid rule that is stable. And the idea of uh, God providing a battle bow, uh, that's come from our previous chapter in Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 13. God promises to use Judah as his bow and Ephraim as his arrow. And so what are, what are this, these three pictures tell us about God's new shepherd? Well, he will be sol he'll be important like a cornerstone, the, the, the thing that brings stability to a building. He'll be solid and dependable like a tent peg and he'll be powerful like a bow. I think that's the idea. And this promised shepherd will lead God's people in a way that they become powerful as well. Verse 4 says they'll be like a battle horse. Verse 5, they'll be mighty men because God is with them. Verse 6, God will strengthen the north and the south. I'll strengthen the house of Judah in the south 
and save the house of Joseph in the north, that the whole of God's people will be strengthened. We'll just sort of move through the rest of chapter 10 quite quickly and it describes all these blessings that God will provide through his shepherd king. Verse 6, they'll be restored. Verse 7, rejoicing. Verse 8, redeemed. Verse 9, remembering. Verse 10 and 11, returning. Verse 12, I had to work a bit harder to come up with an R for this one. Reinforced. They'll be strengthened. All of these wonderful promises that God will bring through his new shepherd king, a true leader providing the conditions for his people to flourish. So that's Zechariah. How did God do all of this? Well, we jump forward 500 years and God keeps all of these promises when he sends his son, our Lord Jesus, the good shepherd. Here's how Jesus describes his leadership. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Jesus is not like Israel's bad shepherds, those who were motivated by self-interest. He doesn't just risk his life, he, he gives his life. Now we might say a good shepherd doesn't give his life. He's no use to the sheep if he's dead. But, but Jesus is the good shepherd who, who gives his life for his sheep. He is the gentle king riding on a donkey who is being saved or who needs salvation. He spills his own blood to establish a new covenant. He brings his flock into a new richness of life. What a shepherd. Jesus is the leader we need. In verse 3 of chapter 10, he says that the shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out and that his sheep will go out and they will find pasture. And then in verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and to destroy. I have come that they, my sheep, may have life and have it to the full. Some translations have abundant life. What's abundant life? Well, at the very least, it's eternal life, life that continues after this life. But it's more than that. Abundant life is life now that has purpose, that has satisfaction, that has depth. Life that is in rhythm with God's life. Life that, has, that eternity casts its shadow over. Life lived with the perspective of eternity. Now that's what Jesus offers when we come to him. Is Jesus your shepherd? Will you listen to his voice? Will you come to him and trust him? He laid down his life for his sheep to save them. To bring them into this eternal, abundant life. He offers that to all who trust him. The shepherds of this life, the leaders, the opinion makers, the influencers, they, they promise you abundance. 
They say, you will find an abundant life in money and power and, and pleasure and rest, looking after number one. But a full life is not found that way. It isn't found when we pursue a full life. You can't find a, a full life by pursuing a full life. If you do that, you will never be satisfied. Counterintuitively, a full life is found when we pursue Jesus. A full life is found as we follow and imitate the gentle and humble king who rides on a donkey. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. But don't expect this abundant life to be relaxing and self-satisfying. Can't guarantee that, I'm sorry. In John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And then this is what he says to them. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? You will be blessed if you go through your life and wash people's feet. <laughs> Who would have thought that would be the way to an abundant life? But after all, this is the leader who powerfully saves by humbly shedding his own blood. So why not? Why wouldn't an abundant life come from imitating our servant king? That's our good leader. The one who provides the conditions for us to flourish. Will you love him? Follow him? Rejoice in him, our righteous judge who defends, our humble king who is saved, our strong shepherd who restores. Uh, let me close by asking you a question. Uh, well, I'm going to read the question and the answer. Uh, it's question one from the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, it's all about abundant life. And as I read it, can I encourage you to dwell on these words? I thought I'd put it on the screen, but it would only be on your text, so I'm going to read it and you can listen. Uh, as I read out the answer to this question, dwell on the words and make them yours as a commitment to follow your shepherd king, Jesus. So I love this question. Uh, question one of the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? I wonder if you don't know the answer to this one, what you would say to that. But here's what people wrote three or four hundred years ago in answer to this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ, who by his precious blood has fully paid for all my sins, has delivered me from all the power of the devil. He preserves me so that unless my heavenly father decides, not even a hair can fall from my head. 
Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live for him. Are they your comforts in life and death? I pray that they are. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is a humble, gentle king riding a donkey who gives up his life for us, who calls us to follow him. Help us to hear him, to obey and imitate him so that we might honour him Amen.